If you have a copy of God's Word, turn with me to Psalm 62. It's time for a moment of truth. How many of you have known what you're getting for Christmas before you open the present? How many of you knew where your parents hid the presents? Yeah, moment of truth, right? We hate waiting for Christmas Day. Corinthian told somebody in here, Brian, I think it was, that Christmas is in three minutes uh, earlier this morning. That was like 30 minutes ago, so uh, in his mind, it's already come and gone. He said, Christmas is in three minutes, and Jonathan corrected him and said, five minutes. Uh, They have no concept of time, but they cannot wait. Uh, They can't wait. We can't wait, right? We can't wait for Christmas. At some point in your life, you probably knew, maybe you had a sibling that was older than you. It's like, you want to know what you're getting for Christmas? Or maybe you found out where the presents were and you couldn't help yourself. You wanted to go, maybe you'd try to get into the wrapping paper. You'd shake the box. Uh, Christmas is a time of waiting. As you get older, I hear you can leave presents under the tree for more than just the night of. Um, we're, We're definitely not at that point. But you see those presents and you're wondering, like, what is that? You know a list of things you asked for. Maybe you have some idea of what it might be based on the size of the box, but you can't wait for that Christmas morning or Christmas Eve when you open up presents and find out what it is. But this theme of waiting at Christmas time is also one of the themes of this season of Advent because we're waiting for the coming of Jesus. And Psalm 62 is maybe the best place we can learn about waiting. So read with me Psalm 62. It's 12 verses. Read with me, starting in verse 1. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up. They're together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God. And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. Let's pray. Father, as we open Psalm 62, I pray that you speak to our hearts. Thank you for this church family. I love each and every one of them. I'm glad you've brought us together because we all have a common need. We all have the same need, and it's Jesus. So as we get to come together and celebrate Jesus this morning in Psalm 62, I pray that you'd work in our hearts and show us how to wait well. Show us what you're doing in the waiting. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I think we'll see three things from this psalm this morning. We're going to see the challenge of waiting. We're going to see that God meets us as we wait, and then we're going to see how we ought to wait. The first point this morning is the challenge of waiting. Waiting is not easy. I didn't even need to read Psalm 62 to know that. Waiting is not easy. But look with me 
at a few verses to see David's challenges as he waited. First, we see in verses 3 to 4, we see some fear in David's life. We see that enemies were attacking, they were battering him, they were trying to knock him down as if he were a leaning wall. They wanted to thrust him down from his high position, and it was hard for David to wait. But then in verses 9 and 10, we see some challenges of waiting, and it was challenges to his faith, because look at what he says. Don't trust in extortion, don't set your hopes on robbery, don't set your heart on increasing riches. These were all temptations for him to put his trust and his hope and his faith in. And then it says in verse 9, it's talking about the men that were his enemies in verses 3 and 4. And it's talking about, look, these men are just a breath. They're a delusion who go up in the balances. They don't have any weight. They don't have any substance to them. So David's waiting in a world that's broken. He sees in his own heart brokenness and temptation to put his faith in other places. And one commentator said that the point is not so much that we have nothing to fear from man in these verses, but it's that we have nothing to hope from man. David was tempted to not wait in his life. You see the brokenness and his enemies attacking him. You see the temptation there. He's like, look, they're trying to thrust me down. There's a real threat to me. Do you think David was tempted to take his own resolution to these things instead of waiting for God to bring him through to salvation? Couldn't David have been tempted to not wait and instead take things into his own hands? Isn't that part of our challenge with waiting? We want to take things into our own hands when we see something that's undone. And I can think of at least one time David didn't wait on God. I'm sure there's many more. But as I thought, in this psalm, David's talking about waiting. And he sees enemies in front of him. He sees temptations to his faith, to put his faith in these lesser things rather than waiting on the true and better object of his faith, God. I can think of one time David didn't wait. He didn't wait on intimacy with his own wife, but instead he rushed off into an affair with Bathsheba. He took his pleasure into his own hands and he said, I'm going to get what I want. And he ran after and said, bring her to me. And then he rushed off and rather than confessing his sin and being broken before God, he rushed off and tried to cover up his guilt. Tried to get Uriah to sleep with his wife on home from army leave and it didn't work. And then finally he resorted to murder and had him killed, said put him on the front lines of battle and then draw back. And then I can marry Bathsheba and we'll cover this thing up. David rushed off rather than waiting on God to provide intimacy with his own wife that God had given him. And in David's challenges to wait, don't we face in our own waiting similar kinds of crisis of fear and of faith? Are there people or groups that have hurt and attacked you or shamed you and if you can't think of any because we do tend to live in a pretty safe world at least this bubble of it the world you live in you're probably not facing enemies who have their bows drawn back ready to fire at you trying to literally kill you but there are surely spiritual enemies that are trying to thrust you down the new testament warns that our battle is not just a battle of flesh and blood it's a spiritual battle That the evil one is trying to pull you down, separate you from Jesus, which can never happen, but it's a victory if he can make you think it can happen. Like David, aren't we tempted to place our trust in the things of this world to be our salvation and our refuge? We're waiting and we're called to wait like David in Psalm 62 because we cannot fix ourselves. 
We cannot fix our greatest problems. We cannot fix our fears. We're prone to placing our faith in lesser gods that offer weak and temporary salvations. But why is waiting so challenging to us? We see the brokenness around. We see the brokenness within. And we realize we can't fix it. Yet we still try. We still get on that treadmill again. And we're going over and over trying to find something to patch the hole in our heart. Trying to find something to protect us from enemies. Waiting is so difficult because it requires us to admit that we're not able to fix our greatest problems. This, friends, is Advent. Advent is looking at the threats around us, at the problems within us, and recognizing that we don't have what it takes to fix it. The Bible is not one big book that's an instruction manual for how to fix your, your life. It's one big book telling you that you can't fix your life, but there's a God who can. And Advent invites you to wait for that God, to sit in that brokenness a little while, to sit in that pain for a little while, and not rush off into the desire for immediate change. See, we want immediate help, immediate relief, and immediate salvation. We cannot believe that God would make us wait for anything good he wants to give us. We can't believe that. If God has something good for us, why would we have to wait for it? Why is, not, why is God not bringing it right now? And if God won't bring us immediate relief, immediate help, and immediate salvation, then we'll go off and we'll find it ourselves. But Advent's telling you, wait, wait a minute. Be still and wait. It's what David says in verses 1 and 2, and then he repeats again in verse 5 and 6. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. One of the themes of this passage is this word alone and only. It's the same word in the Hebrew. And I was talking with Matthew on Thursday. We both spent time in the text and uh, came together and said, okay, what did you see? And he said, that just stuck out to me. I kept saying alone and alone and only and only. And the challenge of waiting is that we can't let our hope slip into something else. We can't let our hope slip away from God and into the things of this world, the things that we know how to do to fix our problems, because that's how we learn to live. And so instead of waiting, we're tempted to take the solution into our own hands, to fix our own problems, find our own solutions, make our own ways, or maybe we're tempted to distract ourselves with more noise, more activity, get busy. Or maybe we're tempted to hide, withdraw, pull back. Waiting is extremely challenging because we desire immediate change and because we think we can bring that change on our own. But waiting in Psalm 62 requires us to admit that we don't have what it takes to bring the change we need and God might not do it as fast as we'd like. But what is offered to us if we choose to wait on God? If that's the challenge of waiting, and we take that challenge and we say, okay, God, I'll take what David says and say, for God alone my soul waits in silence. What's offered to us? And that brings us to point two, that God meets us as we wait. See, waiting is not new right here. Like, it doesn't first get introduced in Psalm 62. This is a biblical pattern. Remember some of the stories of Scripture with me. Abraham waited into his 90s, and God had promised him a child. And it was so unbelievable that his wife laughed. And they waited into their 90s for God's promised child. 
God's people were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. Talk about waiting. Moses was 80 when he confronted Pharaoh. 80 years old. Aaron was 83. God's people wandered in the desert for 40 years before moving into the promised land, in between being rescued out of Egypt and moving into the land God had promised them. 40 years. Hannah prayed and waited for years for children before God gave her Samuel. David certainly waited. Think about the time gap if you read 1 Samuel between David being anointed as king and David being enthroned as king. You think David was tempted to say, all those times, you could go read the stories, all the times that David's men are like, Saul's right here, right? You remember the story where he's, he's in the cave relieving himself. He's sleeping. David cuts off the corner of his robe at one point and says, I could take your life. But David's waiting. He's waiting because he says, that's God's anointed, and I know I'm anointed to be king, and I don't get how all that works. But David says, guess what? It's God's timing. David's waiting. The prophets often spoke their messages from God for years with little, if any, response. Jesus lived for 30 years before he began his public ministry, and then he did public ministry for three years instead of just moving straight to the cross. Paul in Galatians tells us that he took 14 years to sharpen his beliefs and his doctrine and his theology as he was saved out of this strict Jewish faith into believing that Christ is Jesus of Nazareth. And he took 14 years, Paul, that we know. See, waiting is a biblical pattern. And we can wait because of who God is. That's why it's a biblical pattern. Because of who God is. Listen to this list of ways that God has described. Just in these 12 short verses. In verses 1 and 7, we read that from God comes our salvation and on God rests our salvation. In verses 2 and 6, God is my salvation. In verses 2 and 6, again, God is my rock. He's my fortress. He's my refuge, it says twice. In verse 5, it says my hope is from him. On God rests my glory. He speaks in verse 11, so he's a personal God. In verse 11, it also says he's powerful. Power belongs to him. And in verse 12, steadfast love belongs to him. So God is dependable and he's loving. He is faithful forever. He is our refuge, our safe place that we can go to find protection. If this is really who God is, then we can wait because we are safe in him. We can wait because of who God is. And so what this psalm is saying is not promising that we'll never face difficult times, we'll never face enemies, we'll never face the disappointment of sin, we'll never face the consequences of putting our faith in untrustworthy things. But what this psalm is saying is that when those things come, God is a safe place for us. It's not saying if you face enemies, it's saying when you face enemies, here's how you can find hope. When you're faced with something that you don't want to wait for, when you're faced with the potential to find an immediate fix, immediate solution, God is a safe place for you. Notice how in verses 3 and 4 and verses 9 and 10, God is compared and contrasted with the situation. So rather than getting battered and beaten, like he's just a leaning wall and attacked by his enemies and getting thrust down, God is described 
as a rock and a fortress so that David will not be greatly shaken. Do you see that comparison there? The enemies would like him to believe he's fragile and about to fall apart, but David looks to God and sees the exact opposite. And then look at verses 9 and 10. Rather than being as light as a breath, hevel, the same word that's used all throughout Ecclesiastes, rather than being as light as a breath that goes up in the scales or just a vapor on a cold day, God is our glory. And here's how that compares and contrasts. The Hebrew word for glory literally means weightiness. So rather than fearing or hoping in men that are just a vapor here today and gone tomorrow, the scripture says all over, a flower in a field, God is our true weight in life that will last forever. So we can wait because of who God is. And while we're waiting and trusting in who God is, God is working while we wait. God is working while we wait. He, listen to this quote from Paul David Tripp in his book, Lead, that we're reading together uh, as elders. Waiting is one of God's most regular tools of maturing grace. From the perspective of the gospel, waiting is never just about getting what you've been waiting for, but more importantly, it's about the good changes in you that God produces through the wait. Rich uh, Viotis, pastor in New York City, says, what God does in us as we wait is often much more important than what we're waiting for. So as we wait, God is working. How is he working? First, he's working to remind us that God is our one true treasure. He's working to remind us that whatever we're asking for is ultimately less than God himself. So whatever is undone in our waiting, whatever we're waiting for is less than God himself. God is reminding you if I never answer this prayer request, if I never bring healing to this, if I never bring restoration, if I don't deliver you from these enemies, you still have me. And by not answering all of our questions immediately, by not giving us everything we ask for right away, God is teaching our souls to find rest in him. Even as we don't have all the other things we want. We can be glad as we wait because one of the things God's doing is reminding us that he waits for us. He waits for us and that's good news because we're all in a process. And that process is not quick like a microwave. It's long like a crock pot. We're in process. And as we wait, we're reminded that that's part of how God works. And I'm glad because I need God to wait for me because I'm not anywhere close to being where I hoped I would be at this point in my life. There's still so much brokenness and sin that I'm constantly reminded of every day. And waiting reminds me that it's part of his plan. That God's patient with me to grow. We're reminded as we wait that we're not ultimately in control, and that's great news. We see that God's more interested in working to change us than to change our circumstances. That's a hard lesson for us to learn, that God's more interested typically in what's going on inside of me than what's going on around me. That's not to say God doesn't care about things like justice or your safety that's not to say you should put up with things like abuse and only focus on what God's doing in you as you go through that wrong. Absolutely not. You should do whatever it takes to get to a safe place. 
But as you're waiting, and even as you look back over those hard things, God is very interested in what's going on inside of you. And obviously, as you take out those extreme circumstances, and we look at our lives, and we look at the things we're waiting for, we look at the things we're asking God to do, we look at the things we're praying, begging, pleading with God to do. And as he's taking his sovereign time to do them, we can be sure that he is more interested in what's happening in us than around us. I have been through seasons in the last 12 months, two in particular, where I had hoped and thought and asked God to change my circumstances. And it turns out he was more interested in using my circumstances to change me. One of them has to do specifically with Shaliford. I, one year ago, thought we would not be at Shaliford today. When the transition was happening and we were moving kind of out of COVID and we were considering long-term plans for us and our family and for Shaliford, we just genuinely thought God was going to lead us somewhere else. And so we began to pray, God, where do you want us to go? What do you want us to do to our house to get ready to sell it? Where, where are you going to have us be in ministry? We didn't know. We were open. I was open, honestly, to anywhere but here because I just thought he had said it's time to go. And so I had prayed and I had prayed and I had prayed. We prayed together. We looked. We talked to people. Hey, this is what we feel like God's doing in our heart. I mean, what, speak into this. Do you know of anything? I mean, if God's doing this in us, surely there's somewhere out there he wants us to plug into. So we're asking close friends and family to pray for us. And as I begged God to change my circumstances, over the six months that we thought we were leaving, God used those circumstances of praying, God, where do you want me to be? Where do you want me to be? To whisper to our hearts, right here. I thought I was good. I thought I was exactly who God wanted me to be, and he was going to move my circumstances. But God said, no, 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 I'm going to use these circumstances to mold you and shape you. And it turns out the person who I was in November of 2020 when I said I don't need to be here is not the same person who I was in May of 2021 when God said stay it turns out it took a process it took me waiting and the other time this year that God used waiting was as we waited for a decision on our youngest daughter. A decision made by people who didn't know her, know her or love her. We're going to decide the fate of her life. Does she stay with this family? Do we terminate the rights on her biological mother? That's hanging in the balance of people that don't even know her. And we've been through this process. With three other kids, we know what it's like. And we were just talking this week that somehow it got harder every time instead of easier. And then as we're waiting for this court date, the court date finally comes and then it gets moved back another month. And so I had this anxiety like I've never had before from probably July until the end of September, waiting. Looking at her every day as she woke up in the morning, Picking her up out of her crib, feeding her. I mean, you can't escape. Some things you try to escape, so I need to get my mind off this, and I, you can't do that with your youngest child. And so as we're waiting for a decision, I am begging God every day, God, please decisively make this happen, knowing an answer couldn't come until September 28th. 
and praying for something that I knew I wasn't gonna get an answer to was incredibly challenging. No, getting to the place where I had to say, you know what, God, she's not mine. None of them, I'm not promised tomorrow with any of my kids. The truth is, I could have lost one of the kids that is ours forever. In our forever family, I could have lost one of them before I lost her because that's the way the world works. None of these kids are guaranteed to me. None of these kids belong to me. But it was in the waiting and the pain that God began to work in me. Show me that I had anxiety not just about that but about a lot of things in my life because I wanted to tight grip on it. I wanted to control it. I wanted to be able to solve and find a solution and figure out a path out of it. And it was in that situation that God said, I'm going to put you in a circumstance that you literally cannot do that. You're not one of these attorneys. You're not one of these defects workers. You're not the judge. You're going to be a passive participant in a circumstance that's going to stretch you and pull you and you're going to have to wait. As painful as it was and praise God it worked out the way we wanted I mean when they the court case was even we're sitting there on zoom and I'm like oh my gosh they're making some arguments that I didn't know they would make and I I literally didn't know until the judge said the decision and I just a relief of tears a relief immediately came over me and I have been brought back to that moment because I just, it was like all this emotion I'd held up in me was finally released out. And I recently read, I've been telling you about this book, Prayer of the Night by Tish Harrison Warren, and she says where, in Revelation where it says God will wipe away every tear, she said maybe and definitely, you know, it means that every tear you've ever cried, God's going to wipe away and you're not going to be any more crying. But she said maybe it also means that when we get into the presence of God, there will be one more final weeping over all the brokenness that remained undone in our life and world and we're going to see Jesus and have one more good cry in the arms of our Savior. And he will literally wipe away our tears. I felt like that's what he did for me as I waited. But one thing I know is that as I waited, as Abraham and Moses and Hannah and David waited, as Jesus and Paul waited, as you wait, is that God is with us as we wait. God is with you as you wait, and he is working as you wait. So as we look at the challenge, we look at how God meets us as we wait, the last thing I want us to look at is how we wait. First, silence. We see it in this text, right? For God alone, my soul waits in silence. You know, silence is actually one of the classic spiritual disciplines. Maybe you didn't know that. Maybe if you did know that, you try to forget that because <laughs> silence is difficult. We tend to forget it. But when we're quiet and still, that may be the truest version of ourselves because we're no longer trying to achieve something, no longer trying to perform for anyone else who's watching no longer trying to fix ourselves or our lives so that we can quietly look to the one who can fix us in a true and lasting way. The one who sees through our performance to who we really are. The one who loves us not based on our achievements. So how can we practice silence? We gotta get still. 
We've got to fill our mind with God's word. Meditate on who he is and what he said, on the character of God. Take a psalm, take a verse. Meditate on, some, on the beatitudes. Meditate on the fruit of the spirit. Take a psalm and just think about it and be still. Don't jump into a list of praying for all the things. Yes, that's good. Pray for that, but be silent. But the other thing that's interesting in this psalm about silence is he does say in verse 8, pour out your heart before him. So there's also a time for speech, and this is classic prayer, right? Pray what's on your heart. I'm so thankful that so many of you pray for others, but if that's all your prayer life consists of, that's not the prayer life that scriptures talk about. Prayer includes pouring out your own soul before God. So you're invited to an honest prayer life with God. Third, how we wait, let's look at our faith. Where are you prone to place your trust besides God? What quick and immediate and temporary fixes are you tempted to put in front of you? Like David says in verse 10, set no vain hopes. We need people who are going to help correct our faith and our trust. Hey, you're trusting in these things. You're really depending on taking control of your life in this way, and you need to come back to Christ and believe what Jesus says about you. Even this morning, I'm talking about parenting with Nathan, and I'm talking about all the ways it's like, you, you want to grow, but when you learn things that you grow as a parent, it makes you immediately look back at all the ways you didn't know that before. And so I said, how do you handle guilt? And so we're talking about that, and Nathan just gently brought me back and said, yeah, but we got we to gotta meditate on Christ's love for us. Because as we consistently see how much he loves us, it's going to fill us with that love that we can pour out to others. I'm going, yes. My faith in that moment was on me figuring out how to be a better dad. And it's like, no, you need to go look at Jesus and his love, and that's how you be a better dad. I need people in my life who can help me correct and repent and put my faith in Jesus again. And the last thing for how we wait is hope. The truth is, our waiting in this life will never end. When we're on our deathbed, the moments before we pass from this life in this body the way we know it now, there will be things that are undone in us and in the world. Sins that you didn't repent of, that you never conquered, ways that you hurt people that were never restored and reconciled, brokenness and pain all around. And we must wait because none of this will be fully and finally fixed in this life. So we're not just waiting for someday when all of this is going to get better on this side of the grave, we're waiting for Jesus to come again. Advent is special because we look back at the first coming of Jesus and we look ahead to his second coming. And when he does come again, the very last line of the psalm, he will render, he will render to a man according to his work. He will overthrow every enemy that threatens us. He will put away all sin and all rebellion against God once and for all. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, 22 to 26. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Listen to this last line. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So in our waiting this Advent, whatever you're waiting for in this life, 
I commend you. I pray that Psalm 62 helps you to wait with God for those things. But I pray that we're waiting for that day because that is the only day that will be tr bring true and lasting healing and redemption to you. There's nothing on this side of that day. Nothing on this side of that day that can fix you, heal you, save you. But when Jesus comes again, we will realize our ultimate hope is in his resurrection. So it's hard to preach Christmas without also preaching Easter. Because that's why Christ came, to live, to die, and to come back to life so that we could have life. There's a reason he calls it eternal life. It's not just because it's life we get in eternity. It's because it's the kind of life that starts now and never ends. Paul says, if, if Christ hasn't been raised, if we have hope in this life only, we're of all people, we're the most to be pitied. We don't. As we wait this Advent, we're waiting for Jesus to come again and make all things new. All the things you're waiting for that don't get fixed. All the pain that doesn't get redeemed. Christ is coming again to wipe away every tear. And he says, behold, I'm making all things new. Let's pray. God, thank you for sending Jesus to love us, to save us, to be with us in our waiting so that you would work in our hearts and in our lives as we wait for those things we think we need that we don't really need. And all along the way, you're showing us that you are the one we were created for. You are the one we really need. Thank you for doing that. And I pray that this morning you would work in our hearts to wait for you alone and not for the lesser things that we're tempted to put our faith in. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.